Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for listening to You Had Me at Black. Today's story comes from a Mecca from Nigeria. He tells a coming-of-age story about growing up in Minneapolis and how a single book from a school administrator motivated him to channel his energy from gangs and fighting to sports and academics and ultimately helped him find the power he'd so desperately been craving. This is You Had Me at Black, the podcast where black millennials tell true life stories. So now it's the fall of 2001. At this point in time, it's sometime in the fall, the air is a bit cold, and I think at this point I've been punched the third time. Take the hit, sitting at the bus stop, and I'm a little bit confused about what's going on, but this is where the bullying begins, I guess. I'm sitting there, you know, I'm a pretty scrawny kid, don't have much fight in me. A lot of heart, a lot of anger. I've been pretty temperamental up until this point as a kid, but never really knew how to use it or what context I needed to use that, that kind of energy in. Kid hits me again, it's the fourth time. This kid is a notorious bully, and I guess for, for whatever reason, I have a face that's, that's very punchable, I guess. He hits me again. And now I'm just crying. I'm embarrassed. Everybody's watching. And, you know, kind of how it goes at that age is just, you know, kids being kids, I guess. I'm incredibly frustrated, incredibly upset. I live maybe four blocks away from the, from the bus stop. And at this point in time, I'm still a little bit irrational. I run in the house. I'm bawling. My mom's like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? I'm like, nothing. She looks away and goes to her room. I run in the kitchen. I grab a knife and I run back to the bus stop. I find a kid who had just hit me and I start chasing him. He takes off and he runs home. I chase him about two blocks. In a lot of ways, I think that moment kind of defines where I knew things are really about to take a turn for the worse for the next couple of years. That happens. And I think in that moment in hindsight, I really realized that this was a kid, at least at that age, who was in a lot of ways kind of just fed up from the continuing bullying and feeling no sense of kind of agency or control about what's really happening in my life at that point. Anyways, sixth grade, again, school, I had always been an incredibly good student. I think my teachers always you know, thought I had a lot of potential, thought I was a pretty smart person, did really, really well in my classes. But who you hang out with, you know, is kind of your livelihood at that age. So I'm a quiet kid who's trying to latch on to the cool kids. The problem here is uh, I'm going to a public school. It's 2001. Minneapolis at the moment has one of the highest murder rates in the country. There's a lot of gang violence. I'm going to school near the city. Nonetheless, I make two good friends at the time, or you know, based on what I thought friendship was, and a kid named Mike and another kid named Tyrone. Tyrone's from Milwaukee. Mike's from the area, and we become fast friends. I would show up at school in the morning. I would get off the bus. I would call the school as if I was my dad, like, hey, Emeka has a flu. He will not be in class this week. And I would skip school the entire week, and all we would do is smoke. We would smoke, play video games. There's a McDonald's around the corner. Go to McDonald's and basically look for people to really just harass. We go through this, and this becomes basically my sixth and seventh grade experience for the most part. It's just a lot of rebellion. Of course, class is, is still so easy that when I do go to class, as long as I'm there, I know what's going on. The issue is I just don't turn in any homework assignments. So at best, I'm getting a C, at worst a D, but I'm not failing. So no child left behind. I'll, I'll be moving on forward. That happens, and you know that's a lot of my middle, middle school experience up until that point. It's kind of more of the same tension. You have this kid who really just wants a sense of control. I've been in boxing now in about two or three years. My dad is trying to 
you know, make sense of my energy. I don't know. I'm just really, really, really just struggling in terms of who it is that I am and who it is that I really want to be. This set the stage for a very interesting summer. Getting ready for high school, I end up getting jumped into this gang and go through that process, and it's a very interesting one. It's not Hollywood. It's not you need to go kill someone who's... It's nothing dramatic like that. It's just six or seven people beating the hell out of you for, you know, 10, 12 minutes, and then getting that's it. So we get to high school now. High school's a little bit further than the burbs, but parents, because my older brother had moved us out of where we live, the proximity to the city, in about 15 to 20 minutes inland, I guess northwest to the northwest suburbs, and that's where we're living now. My sister, older sister at the time, is a complete contrast of all of us in a sense that she's your 4.6 GPA student, AP, IB this, you know, Ivy League this. Like, she's just, she's doing all the right things, and we're just like our parents' impeding headache. I'm not as out of control in a sense that I'm, st- I'm still going to school, still showing up, whereas my older brother, that's, that's not really a thing that he's consistently interested in at that point in time. So freshman year starts, and we'll fast forward through high school a bit, but freshman year starts, and it's now I've got, you know, a different group of friends, of course. Tyrone, who's the kid that I fought the last day of school, he ends up moving back to Milwaukee for a couple of years. Minneapolis has been our crackdown from a legal perspective. Things are, are dying down, so to speak, in terms of the amount of violence and the amount of, I guess, influence and the things that you're experiencing in that space. It's freshman year, and you know, everyone picks their classes, there's energy, there's excitement. I befriend another kid. And I look back at it now, and it's like, you know, you think I would choose my, my friends better, but I think a lot of times the people that you choose to associate yourself with says a lot about kind of what you lack or what you want or, you know, who you are at that given point in time. So at that point in time, I was a kid who was really, really, I guess, grasping the straws as far as agency and a sense of self and a sense of just, you know, power. So it becomes us three. You know, we're, we're really good friends. I try to get involved more with school, try to play football. Became a really good football player. Basketball, started playing basketball the following year as a sophomore. At this point in time, I've probably grown like five inches. Going to school as much as we need to. The fact that we're trying to play sports and be more engaged that way is really the only thing that's really keeping us around. Top of this, I have a dad who's made sure that I've signed up for every honors class that I could possibly find, making sure that I'm taking AP courses. The only issue is you, you kind of have to be in class for these classes. So I would show up and I would do well from the standpoint of if I'm there, I know what's going on. It's easy. I get it. If there's homework, you're not going to get it, point blank. So it's really, really hard to do well. So in a lot of ways, I'm self-sabotaging myself. Ninth grade is still a lot of fighting. It's still a lot of violence. It's still a lot of... Me really just butting heads a lot of people that were there. My boy Keith, he's a year older than me, so he's an upperclassman. He's a hothead in a lot of ways. He comes from an environment that's much more intense, I guess is the way to, to put it, than mine was. We're getting into fights almost, I don't know, seemed like once a month. Never in school, though. It'd be out after school. We would leave school, go smoke, shoot the ball around, don't do homework, do absolutely nothing, and then go back home. A lot of people always ask me, like, Yo, how are you able to get away with this? And it's when you, when you come to a country as an immigrant, your parents literally, at least mine were, they worked. I always tell people I don't really remember seeing my dad from about third grade until my sophomore year of high school. You know what I mean? When I was home, he was at work. So because of their schedules, they're, they're not making it to the student-teacher conferences. They're asking for report cards, but I, at this point I had gotten pretty good at excuses and at making up report cards if I needed to. 
So there, there's not really much perspective as far as what it is they believe is going on. So two defining instances that ultimately happen is I'm a sophomore now. There's a kid, and his name is, what is Chris Ellis. Pretty boy Chris, you know, light-skinned kid. I have to fade the waves, you know. I'm, my hair, you know, tougher than Nigerian hair. I can't get a wave to save my life. And, you know, girls love him. He's an athletic kid, cool kid. And it's still me. I'm still, in a lot of ways, still the same person. My temper is still very flash-tempered, but I've always been incredibly, like, introspective about everything that's going on around me. And there's a particular day where he he said something that's kind of off the cuff, like, you know, I don't know, man, people that wear pink are kind of soft. And I'm like, okay, that's what's up. Six weeks later, he showed up to school with a pink polo on. And I'm, and I'm like, yo, I thought people that wore pink was kind of soft. You know, everybody calls him out. He gets really, really embarrassed. His feelings are hurt. And... I go to class and I come back and I'm like, yo, again, similar situation. Yo, Chris said, you know, yeah, he's looking for you. He wants to fight you. I'm like, really? I'm like, just because I said his shirt was pink? I'm like, you shouldn't be a hypocrite then. But I'm like, cool. I'm like, I told Keith. He's like, cool. If anybody else jumps in, I got you. We're over there. Class is going on. I, just me being a person I am, I'm like, all right, go to the principal office. I'm just letting y'all know this person said they, they do want to fight. If they touch me, I am knocking them out. The principal at the time was Mr. Thornton, 10th grade principal. He would actually end up leaving the school a year at a time. He was a person that was really, really hard on me, and I think it's because he really, really cared about me. And I was literally in his office about every day or every two days. I was getting sent to the principal office for something, so we got to know each other really, really well. So I tell him, he's like, all right, well, they do anything, just walk away. I'm like, look, I'm just telling you really just because of what my dad said so I don't get in trouble when I get suspended and end up at home. He's like, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. So, you know, day ends, I'm upstairs now, the, the period is over, and I'm walking to my locker, and out of nowhere, I just get blindsided, and I get hit by somebody. This kid, Chris, punches me. I pick him up, throw him on the ground, I'm just, I'm mauling him, just left, right, left, right. Teacher grabs me, scoops me up, and he's like, all right, you know, that's enough. We're still throwing claws at each other, punching at each other, and now I'm in the principal office, five-day suspension, first time officially being suspended from school. They're talking about behavior misconduct, and they're thinking about expelling me. This was the first instance when I was like, yo, there's something that's, I feel like I may be taking it too far. Maybe. I wasn't 100% sold yet, but I, I felt like I was pushing that point. A month later, about, yeah, because now we're approaching winter time. A kid that I grew up with is really, really good friends with my with my brother, my older brother, who's an interesting kid, incredible athlete, who had a lot that he wanted to do or needed to do, but found himself involved in a lot of gang-oriented things relatively early. He was also kind of in the same path I was, but further along in terms of his group of friends and with the smoke and the party and the kicking it and everything else. A kid that I grew up with, I don't know if I could legally use his name, but he's, what I would find out later is that he's been doing a lot of bank fraud and over at one point, I don't know, five million dollars worth of fraud in the Minneapolis area. Him and his boys actually two years ago finally got caught up by the FBI. They're serving about 20 years in, in prison at the moment. But he hits me up. He's like, yo, you trying to make, you know, quick five grand. You know, five grand at 14 is a whole lot of money. I'm like, hell yeah. Like, what's up? What do you need? He, you know, he's like, just give me your bank account number. I'm going to send you this check. You just got to go deposit it and just give me 25%. You can keep the rest. I didn't know he was making fake checks. These were, I don't know how to, what the term is, but the water coloring, everything, it looked like a real check from 
a business that did not actually exist. But the way banking was set up at that time, they had no reason to question the funds. They would release it after 24 hours if it was over a certain threshold. But, you know, I hadn't done anything for them to have to question it. So naturally, he was going to get the money. So that happens. He sends a check in, gives me the check. I take it in. I cash it, straight cash. It's Christmas time, so I'm balling. I'm buying all the academics. I'm buying everything for my parents. Got my first pair of Air Force Ones. Finally stopped wearing the fake FUBU ones I've been wearing for years. So I'm buying all this stuff, and I'm like, yo, I'm living. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's in the past. Now that's gone. A month and a half later, my dad just comes to my room, and he's just knocking on the door like, what the hell did you do? Here's a letter from the FBI saying you're involved in some kind of fraud ring and X amount of dollars. I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. He's like, then what happened? What is this about? I was wondering where you got all the money for the stuff you were buying during Christmas. I'm like, so I had, to, I had to come clean. I told him the entire story. My dad ultimately ends up having to pay that money back to avoid me going to prison or going to jail or any kind of legal repercussions. He pays it back, and that whole situation causes my mom so much anxiety that she is literally just, she, she ends up sick. It, it triggers a lot of health issues that she had already had, and it just pushes her to the absolute brink, both mentally and just emotionally. And anyone who has a Nigerian or immigrant parent knows Nigerian moms tend to be very dramatic and fatalistic. If you do one little thing wrong, it's the end of the world. So yeah, so that, that takes place, and my older brother's still around at the time, and now he's talking to me like, yo, you gotta, like, you're pushing it. You know, you need to, you need to figure this out, figure that out. And at this point, I'm a sophomore. I'm becoming a really, really good, you know, athlete. Really growing into myself as far as basketball. And I meet a teacher. Well, he's not really even a teacher. Eric was, I don't know, certain public schools. I had that one guy who kind of follows all the bad kids around to make sure they don't fight nobody or do anything. So Eric was that guy. And every time I saw him, he always had a book with him. On uh, one particular instance, he was reading. The 40 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. We get to talking about it. He's like, man, Meg, you know, you got the game all wrong. Like, this is the bigger picture. This is how the dynamics really work. He's like, hey, borrow this. Read some of it. At least just let me know what you what you think. This is a point in time where if, if anyone's ever actually read the book, the way it's structured is there's 40 Laws of Power. It goes through these individual laws, so to speak. And within those laws, there's a historical reference that helps you to kind of see what that law was in application as well as what the reversal is. So what happens if you you know, kind of fail to obey this law? So I read through it. A couple laws stand out to me as I'm thinking about my life at that point. You know, like there's no such thing as a free lunch. Avoid the, I think it's infectious and unlucky. And that's when it really stuck with me as far as really thinking that you could change people's energy and really realizing that certain people, for whatever reason, attract bad things, and it's not your responsibility to try to fix them. It's your responsibility to protect your energy. So we go through that, and it's, it's him and I, and he's got me reading the stuff, and now it's really, really, really challenging kind of what it is that I think, and I'm like, man, okay, cool. I got you, I got you. So now I'm not hanging out with Keith and them as much. They're asking me, like, yo, like, what's good? Like, you know, you don't, you don't mess with us anymore? Like, you're starting to change? Like, you know, what's up, what's up? But I, I'm realizing that the further remove myself from that situation. And I'm learning as I'm acquiring this knowledge, I'm getting really, really certain of, of myself as far as this is a person I want to be. This is where I want to go. I have no real vision as far as 
what life had for me ultimately in terms of college, et cetera, et cetera. It was, you know, the years getting ready to wrap up. I'm, I'm still not really going to class as much as I need to be, but I, I'm still, I have a renewed passion for learning things that I wanted to learn that I hadn't had since I was in elementary school, right? When I used to just read often and all the time. Now I'm back to like really wanting to read, really want to figure out. Teachers are telling me, you know, you have X potential, you need to do X this. And then finally, the defining moment was Clark Sanders, who's now one of my mentors and a close family friend. He was an AP psychology teacher, and he had coached my sister to a state championship, had he ran track himself at Ohio State and was a, you know, master's in, at University of Minnesota. Really, really just cool, humble guy who just had a reputation in, in the school for being the hardest teacher and for challenging kids to really think. He, uh, he challenged me, he's like, hey, Mac, you're not going to make it to college. It's the end of sophomore year. I've got a 1.8 GPA. I, I knew what I was capable of. I, I didn't know to what extent, but it just required a little bit of focus. He's like, I'll make you a deal, man. He's like, you can get all A's. For every quarter, you get all A's. I'll, I'll take you out to eat. And I give you some money for the A's that you do get. I, mean, I don't really care about the money. I, I, I knew how to make money at that point in time. But I'm like, okay, it, it'll be fun. We'll see. I need, to, I need to get it together. And from that point in time, I didn't get a single B the rest of my high school career. I got one C, and it was actually in his class, his AP psychology course. I'd end up graduating with 3.0. I would take the ACT. He had ACTs, I think, my senior year, the last possible date. And I was scoring actually relatively high for someone who did not study at all. I was scoring in high 20s, would end up getting to a place where these colleges that were not talking to me about college could actually offer me these scholarships without having to go to a juke or anything like that. So yeah, I, I ended up going, of course, playing college basketball, being on the dean's list virtually, you know, every most semesters, actually almost every semester that I was in college and graduating with a degree in biological sciences and psychology. And I always tell the story. And the people that, it's kind of when they say, you know, if you have five friends, your salary is going to be the average of what your five friends are doing. I look back at it, I'm like, probably been a year later in terms of deciding to, to do something different. The three people that were my closest friends throughout the time have all done time in prison. Keith, who was my best friend up until I left high school, just got out of prison two years ago for armed robbery after he graduated. So he spent about four years. His brother, his older brother, who I was also really close to, is doing 20 years right now. And I look back at him, I'm like, man, that, that could have been me, or maybe that was supposed to be me. But some way, somehow, being focused because of a book, because of a, a widening perspective as far as what does it really mean to have power to be in control? Because at the end of the day, that's what I was really looking for. It started with, you know, getting beat up and being frustrated having a, a sense of helplessness that kind of just suffocates you and saying, hey, you know, I don't ever want to feel this way and allowing your environment to provide you with what you need to make that feeling stop instead of finding a, a deeper, just a different route because there's always multiple routes. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, visit youadmeatblack.com slash review to leave a review and subscribe.